All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm talking to you from New York City on the 21st of September, 2021. I want to thank each of you for listening to the show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. I also want to invite you to continue sending along whatever comments you have about this show to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions number four. Uh, Taylor at gmail.com. And of course, we do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Sponsors for today's show Novo Resources, Eloro Resources, Hannon Metals, Labrador Gold Corp., Lion One Metals, SK Mining Corp., and Firefox Gold. Before I introduce today's show, I would like to mention uh, that Labrador Gold Corp. has announced that it has sampled 338 grams per ton gold along strike some three and a half kilometers from its big vein high grade. Uh, discovery. And while Labrador Gold's Kingsway project is a little sister to the Queen's to the Queensway project that is fast evolving into a world-class gold discovery, that one being by that one being by Newfound Gold. Uh, this news that we just came out today, I believe, really confirms uh, well sort of helps to increase the confidence that this is a very major system, three and a half kilometers away. Of course, there's lots of drilling and lots of work that has to be carried out yet. Uh, before we can start to make any comparisons with Newfound's magnificent discovery next door. But it is an exciting development, and the stock has performed very well today as a result. Uh, I think it was up, um, oh, I don't know, it was up a little bit longer. Chen Lin's going to be with me in a few minutes. I think he's been tracking it maybe more closely than I have today, uh, but we'll, he might have something to say about that very soon. Um, of, of course, um, it, it's really one or see where the gold price is going now. This is, uh, of course, the driver for the junior mining shares. Uh, it's it's very, very dependent on the gold markets, and the gold markets have not been all that kind to the junior share uh, sector over the last couple of months or so. But uh, there could be some indications that that's about to change. I know Michael Oliver said last week he believes that we are about to see a shift in the asset categories uh, and uh, actually, in his 360 report on the weekend, he suggested that we, if we can see a Tuesday close, that's a close today, above 1767, uh, that would be the first hurdle and the first thing he'd want to see. Well, as I looked at the price of gold just a few minutes ago, it was at 1775. So it looks as though we could clear that first hurdle that Michael was talking about in his weekend missive. But what he really wants to see is gold to clear the 1825 level in October for a real serious and significant breakout to the upside. Meantime, there is evidence, I think, that the S&P may be indeed facing a long overdue correction. Uh, we might get the 
uh, get the uh, the reading on that from Chen Lin as well as Alistair McLeod later in the show. Uh, but uh, certainly, um, I think it's a time to keep your eyes on the markets, and I think there could be some great opportunities uh, in the markets uh, if you stay awake and stay alert. So uh, I've titled today's show, Why the Dollar's Debt Trap is Inflationary. And as I said, Alistair McLeod will be with me. Dr. Quentin Henning will join me second half of today's show to talk about, or the second uh, segment of today's show, I should say, to talk about El Oro Resources, and Chen Lin will be with me momentarily. Including bonds and other financial issues emanating from the U.S. government, the individual states, the private sector, and the broad monetary, uh, and the broad money supply, dollar debt totals roughly $100 trillion, to which we can add shadow banking liabilities realistically estimated at a further $30 trillion. This gives us an idea of the scale of the threat to asset values and banking posed by higher interest rates, which my guest Alistair McLeod believes are all now are all but certain in the near future. Alistair says that the prospects of contracting financial asset values, that is seeing them go down, seeing asset values contract, is potentially far worse than in any post-war uh, financial crisis because the valuation based for them starts at zero or even negative interest rates in the case of Europe and Japan. Many investors argue that the existing fiat money system, if it, if and uh, when it self-destructs, the dollar will be the last currency standing. But Alistair will explain why he believes the dollar is likely to be the first to fold, taking the other fiat currencies down with it. Of course, in trying to save the dollar, the Fed will, ex, uh, will, will almost certainly accelerate its demise and the demise of the entire dollar-centric fiat system because it will be forced to exponentially create money out of thin air in a vain effort to overcome the underlying deflationary pressures of levels of debt the world has never seen before. And Alistair will be with me in the second half of today's show to talk about uh, the uh, debt trap, the dollar's debt trap, and why it's inflationary. Uh, in the second segment of today's show, as I just mentioned right after our first commercial break, Dr. Quentin Henning will update us on Eloro's, as Eloro Resources, ISCA, ISCA Massive Silver and Tin Rich Project in Bolivia and why this could become one of the largest silver deposits in the world. Uh, Quentin will be with me, as I said, just right after the first commercial break, but I'm happy to tell you that Chen Lin is with me now. It's always good to have my friend Chen with me. Thanks for joining me today, Chen. Thank you. Glad to be here, Jay. Always good to have you. And uh, I must first ask you about China because there's been a lot of uh, news about China, the Evergrande a real estate uh, financier, financial company, very, very large institution, uh, is having some insolvency problems. What are your thoughts about that and maybe China in general right now and how it plays into the global markets? Yeah, I've been watching that for months. I, I actually, months ago in, in August, I already sent out a note to my subscriber that I'm bearish on China, so I sold out all these economic-sensitive stock again. You know, I just don't want to get involved. And I've been watching Evergrande, I mean, whatever the name is, mm -hmm. uh, dropping like a rock. I mean, last week I have a Meadows Investment Forum. At that time, I put it on uh, the chart. It was $4, Hong Kong dollar. The, today, I uh, look at it, $2, Hong Kong dollar. Uh -huh. Okay, it's probably going to zero. And I think at the end, the Chinese government will, will take over because she is uh, looking for his third term. So he will just 
try to shovel it somewhere. So it will be a bank takeover. In China, this kind of bankruptcy has, has happened before. In general, there's a government or a big bank or another company takeover, but they don't uh, honor all the debt, right? So they basically separate it to small investors, small individual investors. You get your money back, but no interest, okay, because the default bankruptcy situation. And if you're a big investor, they, you get a haircut. I mean, haircut mm-hmm. depends on, you know, the, your asset level and how much you can, you know, you can sustain. And uh, it usually takes a few few years to sort out. I, I think at the end, probably the shareholder will be wiped out. So uh, this is a, such a horrible uh, situation there. The company offered like a three choices if you follow the news. I mean, I mean news media basically if offered the bondholder either you can rearrange, you know, you spread out interest in a few years, or you can get in, give your apartment <laughs> in lower of the payment, empty apartment, uh-huh. or you can use that down payment uh, for any purchase of their apartment. But who knows who wants to get into their apartment? The problem yeah. is even they give you a, a drawing of apartment with this going to be built, right? I mean, even it built, yeah. it's probably empty. So that's yeah. the problem. So I think the company probably in default and probably going down. Yeah. Well, China has used these kind of construction projects to stimulate growth, but if there's no end users for the apartments, it's uh, long term. It doesn't work out so well, I guess. But uh, oh yeah. So do absolutely. you see? Do you, I think long term is a problem, uh, but short term they probably will shuffle it somewhere and mm-hmm. uh, you know just bury it before she yeah. third term. All right. Uh, what about gold, Chen? We see a little bit of an uptick in gold today, and as I mentioned, kind of uh, clearing Michael Oliver's hurdle for today. Do you think there's any chance we could be seeing a, a turnaround for gold? I think short term looks pretty good because we have an end of the month, we have Fed meeting end of the month, and then uh, end of quarter rebalancing next week. Uh, those, all these probably bullish. Uh, in the midterm, I probably well, would wait for the tapering announcement. Again, you mm-hmm. know, usually tapering announcement is the bottom. That's my Meadows Investment Forum uh-huh. uh, presentation. I put a lot of diagram there to explain why. So that's probably happening at the end of the year. That's also same time as tax loss selling. So it seems that may be a better buying opportunity, but it could, you know, we could have a bounce here. Yeah. Well, I guess some of us are hoping for it, but on the same time, if we've got cash available, buying opportunities are wonderful as well. And Chan, I can't oh, yeah. let you go. And then for the juniors, it's really yeah. case by case. You mentioned Labrador. Yeah. I just have yes. communication with the CEO, Roger Moss, mm-hmm. and then he's very excited. He said this is all crap they found, and then south of that, and they think they could be another one. Yeah, it could be better, and then south of theirs, and then more towards new fungal. So we'll find out when they drill this. And uh, but but it's it's uh, exciting. That shows that this is a district scale. This has a lot of opportunities out there. Yeah, I uh, think Labrador there's, uh, is up about 23% uh, right now, so it's today. very nice. You're talking yeah, today, today yeah. Chen. Yes, today, yes. Up 22 yeah. right now. 22, 23. Yeah, it's about that. Yeah, yeah I mean, this is a, a model very similar. I mean, the, the geology is almost identical, if not identical, to the Kingsway project next door that is uh, being developed, and, and certainly, almost certainly, a world-class Gold discovery underwear they are so underwear they're underway there I should say and 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 certainly there um, there you know there really is a, a much smaller market cap much I think much potentially much larger upside 
uh, for this uh, for this stock as well. For the new phone, uh, yeah, yeah. For then then for new phone, right? Uh, let me just ask you, Chen. Can't let you go without you commenting briefly on biotech uh, sector, biotech stocks. Anything you'd like to say about that? Oh yeah, biotech is really turned around uh, since I calling the bottom a month ago. I already have like two stocks. It's no news up fifty percent. So it seems to be a really tradable bottom in August. And then many biotech again was down eighty ninety percent with no news. And then there's still a lot of stock trading at close to cash. And I'm still pounding the table on biotech. You get just so many opportunities, and people just looking at the situation. If you think of COVID, you know, it's transitory. COVID impact to biotech is limited. Then there's a lot of upside, and then there could be more MMA coming. So I actually, I'm very excited about biotech, and I probably have another new idea for my subscriber this week. Yeah, well, it's a very exciting. I know... Um I follow as much as I have time. I follow some of the uh, biotechs that you have out there, Chen. It is exciting, so we should tell our listeners it's ChenPicks.com, ChenPicks.com to sign up for Chen's very exciting uh, ideas that he passes along to his subscribers. Um, it's uh, Chen. What is Chen buying? What is Chen selling? Is the name of his publication, and it's ChenPicks.com. Any any last mo- any last uh, word? Any last comment you'd like to make, Chen? I think market probably overblown this uh, China's Everglades uh, uh-huh. financial crisis. It could create a buying opportunity. You know, let Wall Street hammer this out and have a big down day yesterday and today try to rebound, start falling back. So, but again, I think uh, it's a short-term Chinese government probably can do something to, to you know, avoid any financial disaster. But it's hard to see over long term uh, mm-hmm. because I'm kind of... Uh, we see the weakness of China over the mid and long term. Right. Okay. Very good. We'll have to leave it go at that. Thank you very much, Chen, for being with us. Folks, don't go away because, as I mentioned, coming up next right after the commercial break, Dr. Quentin Hanning will be with me to talk about El Oro Resources, which, by the way, is having a great day as well. I saw it was up something like 10% a little while ago today. I do not think that most investors are really aware of just how great the massive ISCA, ISCA silver tin rich polymetallic deposit is, but they will soon find out because by the end of this year or the first quarter of next, the company is expecting to come out with its maiden resource, and I know that Quentin Henning thinks this is a, 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 a project, the Iska Iska project is a project that could be, um, could be one of the largest silver deposits in the world. So it's a very exciting story as well. I hope you'll stick around until after the commercial break to hear what Dr. Quentin Henning says. Firefox Gold is actively exploring in Finland, where recent discoveries have sparked a new gold rush. Firefox controls a major portion of a prospective gold belt, giving the company a distinct advantage for exploration and strategic partnerships. The company's strong international leadership team, combined with its Finland-based exploration specialists, will put Firefox on the crest of the coming wave of gold discoveries. Firefox Gold trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol FFOX. Go to firefoxgold.com to subscribe for updates. SK Mining Corp. Trading under the symbol ESK on the TSX Venture and ESKYF on the OTCQB is a mineral exploration company targeting precious metals, rich VMS deposits in the heart of British Columbia's Golden Triangle. 
SK Mining controls a prospective land package totaling 130,000 acres, which lies across a geologic trend that once hosted the prolific SK Creek Mine. With a world-renowned geological team, funding in place, and shareholders such as Eric Sprott, SK Mining is on the cusp of a world-class discovery. Go to skmining.com to subscribe for updates. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have Quentin Henning with me. Uh, today, Quentin's going to talk to us about El Oro Resources, a sponsor to the show. El Oro trades uh, in Canada under the symbol ELO. You can buy it down here in the States, as I have, under ELRRF. 61.9 million shares, recently trading at about $3.43 in Canadian, giving it a market cap for around $212 million in Canadian money. The company's project is the Iska Iska project. It's a very large uh, scale silver tin, uh, polymetallic, silver tin rich uh, polymetallic deposit in Bolivia. The company's had a great deal of success, uh, and that's why I'm really happy to have Quentin with me again to give us the latest, actually, the latest uh, appraisal that he has of this project uh, in Bolivia. So thank you so much, Quentin, for being with me again. Thank you, Jay. Now, um, I'm wondering if you could just start out briefly, give us an idea of this, this very unusual geological model. I mean, it's in Bolivia, but could you talk about, just briefly about the geological model, and then perhaps uh, the most recent assays. I see there was a 53.2 meter intersection of 234.19 grams uh, silver equivalent, which is uh, quite, quite something. But if you could just sort of give us the geological model, and then also perhaps uh, bring us up to date with the latest drill results and what they might mean for this project going forward. Certainly. Look, uh, this is a little bit unusual type system for most investors. Investors are familiar with, you know, porphyry coppers or porphyry copper gold or, you know, different types of gold deposits. This is, uh, this is a silver tin polymetallic system, as you said. Polymetallic simply means there's multiple different types of metals. Now. Uh, if you look at the reason why these things form and why they're so prolific in Bolivia, it has a lot to do with the underlying geology. Bolivia is an area, uh, if you look, it's, it's right where the, there's a bend in the coastline of, of South America along the convergent margin in the Pacific side. And, you know, you can see Bolivia is just, just kind of inboard from that. And it covers an area that, in my view, has seen a pro prolonged history of magmatism. And you get these, what are, are very complex magmas that evolve in that kind of setting. And the magmas that have evolved there take in a lot of different metals. They, they take in, you know, silver and tin and copper and zinc and lead and 
all sorts of things. And those magmas then come up through the crust. They form volcanoes, ultimately. Uh, but as the, the magma bodies uh, come up, and a lot of them just kind of come up and then park themselves in the subsurface, they, they start to cool, and the, the goodies, we'll call them, come out, okay? The, the, there's water in magma, okay, uh, just so everybody knows. Mm -hmm. And what happens is a lot of those metals, the transition metals that we use in industries and stuff, uh, those chemically, they don't like to go in the crystals that are forming from the magma chamber. They get flushed out, okay, and they go into this, the waters, and those waters, and they carry them up to uh, upper parts of the crust and form these wonderful deposits. Tin is a, a bugger to move, and geologically, it's a difficult element to move. Other elements are, too, indium and, and stuff. I mean, they're very difficult elements to move. But in Bolivia, uh, these magmas are just, they are conducive for carrying a big suite of metal. When you find one of these systems... They probably came up in multiple pulses. You know, there's probably, you know, 8 or 10 or 15 um, different pulses of magma, and each one of it carries a little bit different flavor of metal. You know, some might be zinc and lead and silver rich. Others might be more tin and even gold rich. Uh, really depends. At Iski Iski, we see kind of a, a spectrum of, of multiple pulses. Mm -hmm. All right, so you, that is uh, sort of the, the model, and are there any uh, sort of other say big mines that are like that yes <laughs> the, the biggest single silver deposit on earth uh you know potosi is just to the north of us it's part of this this uh, belt of this type of polymetallic deposit in bolivia okay so potosi which was you know the mining began clear back in the spanish time uh, has produced something on the order of 2 billion ounces of silver. I mean, it's just mind-boggling. But that's how big these things can be. They're absolutely huge systems. There's others nearby, uh, current mines like uh, Monero San Cristobal. San Cristobal is to the west of us. Uh, another huge, in fact, it was the largest producer for several years, maybe a decade ago. So, yes, these are wonderful deposits that uh, produce a lot of metal, and actually, a very high margin. They're bulk, bulk tonnage deposits that can create a lot of margin. So you have done quite a bit of drilling already. You're in the middle of a drill season, uh, a drill program right now. Most recent resource, the most recent headline number I saw was the one I just mentioned: 53 meters, 234 gram silver equivalent. But there have been a lot of other of these long intersections as well. What can you tell us? Uh, and and your focus primarily now is on the Santa Barbara breccia pipe, but there's several other breccia pipes inside this major caldera. Uh, and so I know you've done some work on some of the others, but as I understand it, the main focus right now is on the Santa Barbara breccia pipe. That's where the company, I believe, is, is hoping to build up a, uh, come with a, with a maiden resource, perhaps, in the not-too-distant future. But what can you tell us about the, about the dimensions and the um, uh, let's say, uh, the geometry of what you know already in this Santa Barbara pipe. Okay. Uh, as you said, this is a big volcano. The caldera, basically the collapsed uh, cone or edifice of the volcano, is about 1.8 kilometers in diameter. And the Santa Barbara pipe, the breccia pipe, is up in the northwest quadrant of that caldera. Uh, so... This pipe is just one of multiple eruptive pipes that kind of form a ring uh, around the margin of the caldera. This is where we first started drilling last year. There is a smaller pipe to the northeast of Santa Barbara. Uh, 
well, we drilled the first holes, but we, we could clearly see that there was kind of a center of gravity around this one pipe. So Santa Barbara is the focus of what will be the initial resource, but it's not to say it's all of the system. We've, you know, the company's done drilling elsewhere, and clearly the system's wide open, I mean, to the south and even to the north. Uh, so really what, you know, it's like, it's one, one of those problems that it's a good problem they have. It's so darn big, yeah. you basically, you know, you kind of just have to decide, okay, we're going to target this area first for a resource. So uh, Bill and his team, Bill and Osvaldo have targeted a block uh, that encompasses the Santa Barbara pipe, but also extends northward. They found through recent drilling that uh, the breaches actually continue subsurface to the north of the Santa Barbara pipe out into what you know was previously perceived as the envelope to the pipe. It's actually extending way out to the north or northwest. northwest um, yeah. So. So what it means is we, the box is about 1,200 meters long from northwest to southeast. It's about 500 meters wide, and it's about 600 meters deep. And, you know, I mean, that's that's a huge volume. To put it in context, I think that comes out, if my math was right, I, I did it earlier today, I think it's about 360 million cubic meters of rock. And, you know, at a density of, say, 2.8, that's you know, about a billion tons even. Okay, I'm not saying the entire thing is mineralized, but... Um, if you look at the drill holes that have come back from their area to date, you know, usually typically say between 30 and 50% of the overall length of the drill holes is mineralized, you know, at reportable levels. All right. So, um, if that holds true, then I would say a, a substantial subset of the billion ton target should be, uh, in this resource. Now, uh, the other thing that's quite intriguing, you can actually play with the numbers. You can go through and just do weighted averages of the, the silver equivalent grade of those drill holes or those intercepts in those drill holes. And you can come up with, you know, a pretty good idea of where the, the grade might fall to. And I'll, you know, I'll let people do that. I don't want to lead them down the path. You do, you can do your own exercise. You'll see what I see where you land. <laughs> yeah. Well, Quentin, uh, how much more drilling are they going to have to do before they might have enough to come up with some sort of a beginning resource? Uh, it, they will get the rest of the drilling done here over the next couple of months. It's the assay turnaround that's the critical part. Okay, I, I don't know how many holes they have outstanding right now. It's a bunch. I know that. Uh, but they're drilling a few more holes, especially in that northwest area where they drilled a couple of holes they talked about in the recent news release. Those were killer holes. I mean, visually, you know, they look like the real deal. So I think they're planning on poking some more holes up in that area. Uh, but uh, I would say within the next month or two, they'll have all the drilling they need. It's a matter of getting the assays back. When those come, don't know. It's just one of those funky times right now. But, um, you know, I think the results should be very, very comparable to what's been announced to date. So we might see a resource, if not the end of this year, first quarter of next year, potentially? That's my guess. That's my guess. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, this is obviously a bulk mineable situation it's a large tonnage situation it would uh, if it goes into production it would be a large capex project no doubt about that not one that you'd normally look for juniors to handle i'm wondering if there are in bolivia uh, where the project is if there are some other some major companies down there working there that might find this kind of a project of interest or do you see some big boys down there because i'm thinking to myself Yes, yeah, so you have a 212 million market cap Canadian money or whatever. 
you, sure. you, I don't think the, the goal of the company is to be a producer necessarily. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to speak to aspirations Tom and Bill might have, but um, you know, mining is a, you know, is a whole different league from exploring. You know, but, uh, you know, but it can also create a lot of value. So I don't want to, don't want to belittle it, but, uh, but look, uh, yeah, you know, obviously the idea for most juniors is to go and find a big prize and then turn around and sell it. Well, you know, your question is very, uh, very accurate. You know, wh who's out there? Who, who's looking for this kind of deposit? Look, there aren't too many um, Bolivian companies. I mean, you know, you you got the state-owned comp company, but uh, uh, I believe Comobol, but, you, you know, it's not uh, necessarily in the acquisition mode. Um, the ones that are, you know, we'll call it, you know, non-Bolivian uh, headquartered companies, like Pan American uh, is one, uh, you know, you've got, uh, you know, obviously Sumitomo is there. Uh, they've been mining at San Cristobal for years. Uh, you've got uh, several big companies that, you know, I will just say are looking around. Uh, here's what I see. I see Bolivia being about where Peru was in the late 1980s, early 1990s. Uh -huh. People uh, are seeing the door now open. And you're seeing a lot of major mining companies, poly, you know, we'll call it poly commodity companies, uh, starting to take an interest in Bolivia, which is good. Well, that's good. Um, all right. So just, uh, I don't know, in closing here, I guess, uh, summing up, what should investors be keeping their eyes on? I guess more drill results and that, that resource that is pending. Yeah, it, it, it is. It's still in exploration mode. Uh, lots of drilling happening right now. And yes, uh, watch for results, but also watch for, you know, the results from different areas in the Calder, Calder too. Like you got all, a whole bunch of different uh, targets that have been tested. Yeah. I would say over the next few months, people should have a clear picture. This this thing is huge. It's a, I'm, I call it a generational discovery. <laughs> One that could uh, provide a lot of jobs and a lot of wealth and a lot of necessary uh, metals and some of those indium and some of those things that are not that common are needed for modern day technologies as well. So it's a, it's a very great story. It's really, I'm really pleased to have uh, El Oro as a sponsor to my radio show. And I'm very pleased to have you once again with us, Quentin, just a, a company well-funded to carry out this, this, this uh, drill program. Anyway, it, it, right? Yeah, it got, it did a pretty big raise back in, I think March of this year. And it was more than sufficient to, to cover the, the first leg of, you know, resource drilling and so forth. Like it'll get the company, well down the line for uh, resource, network, and other aspects of early stage, you know, PEA level uh, preparation. Very good. Well, thank you very much, Quentin, for being with us once again. And folks, uh, don't go away because I'm going to be right back with Alistair McLeod, who will be talking to us about the gold markets and what he sees in terms of the dollar debt problem. So we'll be right back with Alistair McLeod. Don't go away. Lion One Metals is focused on high-grade gold in Fiji, led by legendary Canadian financier Walter Barakoff. 
Lion One is permitted for production and drilling for discoveries in one of the most exciting high-grade gold projects in the prolific South Pacific Ring of Fire. Lion One trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol LIO and on the OTCQX under the symbol LOMLF. Go to our website at liononemetals.com for more information about Lion One Metals and high-grade gold in Fiji. Labrador Gold is an exploration company focused on its flagship Kingsway project located in central Newfoundland Gold District. Labrador Gold's first phase drilling program has successfully identified high-grade gold mineralization, including a 3.6-meter intercept, grading 20.6 grams per ton gold, and 1.85 meters, grading 50.38 gram per ton gold. The company has approximately $35 million in the treasury and is led by a world-class team of CEO Roger Moss and technical advisors Sean Ryan and Quentin Henney. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back, Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really happy to have Alistair McLeod with me once again. Now, if you are a serious investor or a serious student of markets and want to understand why markets are acting so irrationally at times um, so that you can better prepare and withstand the government and central bank carnage that they are creating, there's no better place to turn to start with than to go to Alistair McLeod's weekly misses that are published Every Thursday at goldmoney.com, specifically, you need to click on the research page at Gold Money and then click on the insights page to read Alistair's uh, weekly comments. And so I, I'm really pleased to have him with us today. Uh, we want to talk about uh, the dollar's debt trap. And thanks so much for joining me, Alistair. That's very much my pleasure, Jay. It is always great to have you with us. And I'd, I'd like to go back to this August 15, 1971, President Nixon caused the U.S. to default on its obligation under the post-World War II Bretton Woods Agreement to exchange an ounce of gold for every $35 of paper money that foreign central banks sent back to the U.S. Treasury. Uh, but on that date, August 15, 1971, and I remember it as if it was yesterday almost, President Nixon made a speech on television that he said that, uh, well, due to speculators, he blamed speculators for a drain in the gold, uh, gold leaving the U.S., uh, coffers. He said it was only a temporary thing. He was only temporarily closing the gold window. Of course, here we are 50 years later, and there still is no gold backing of the dollar. Interestingly enough, you know, um, last evening, uh, Tucker Carlson, a popular show here in, uh, in Fox, it seemed as though Tucker Carlson, it's hard to believe, still believes that the dollar is backed by gold. It's incredible. But anyway, Alistair, how could you uh, yeah, I'm just wondering how the United States could get away with just unilaterally saying, well, we're not going to pay you gold anymore. I mean, it's like, I guess I, we were a powerful, the most powerful country in the world. Maybe that's the answer. But what are your thoughts on that? And, and what was Europe's reaction 
I have, well, I have two thoughts. I mean, firstly, you're right. America is the, it was then and still is the most powerful um, country in the world. And, um, you know, we, we, we deny that um, at our peril. Um, and the second thing, the second thought I have is, and this is not unique to uh, the US government, but all governments basically tell lies. Uh, so, I mean, well, we call it propaganda. Um, yeah. Let's put it that way. Or spin. Uh -huh. um, and uh, there was um, a, a, a British civil servant who described it absolutely perfectly. He said, um, this was actually in a trial in Australia um, when we tried to stop um, a, a book called Spycatcher being released, mm -hmm. which was all about uh, MI5. Mm -hmm. um, and he described um, uh, what he had said earlier as being economical with the truth. And I think yeah. that <laughs> is absolutely spot on. Uh, all governments do this, I'm afraid. Um, it, it, it comes with the government territory. And um, really, I think what happened was that uh, they got to a point where uh, the um, $35 level was completely indefensible. Um, I mean, you, you know a lot about this, uh, Jay, and you will recall that um, in the late 60s, the London gold pool failed. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the beginning, really, of what led up to uh, that uh, fateful day in August 1971. Mm -hmm. And um, I think, I think um, you know, you can sort of stand back and look at it from the point of view of the Triffin Dilemma. I mean, mm -hmm. Triffin Dilemma basically says that, uh, you know, um, if you're going to provide uh, uh, the reserve currency, uh, then you have got to make reserve currency available for foreigners. And mm -hmm. the way you do that is basically by being irresponsible in economic terms and mm -hmm. running deficits. Mm -hmm. And uh, America had been doing this basically to finance, well, not only the Second World War, but also the Korean War and then the uh, Vietnam War. And of course, it wasn't uh, too surprising, I suppose, that there were an awful lot of dollars in effect printed for export, never to um, or never meant to uh, um, uh, be seen in the US economy. And quite uh -huh. naturally, these were repatriated by countries like France, who were the power in Indochina, uh, going back to before the Second World War. So um, th this, this, this was, um, if you like, the culmination of a series of events that was leading to the end of the Bretton Woods Agreement. And um, what you do, and they were very clever, actually. What they did was they spun this uh, another way, and they said, right, um, you know, okay, it's a temporary suspension, but this very quickly changed into the dollar replaced gold as the reserve currency, mm -hmm. the reserve money. And um, they did this basically by denying that gold had any role in, uh, um, in, in international money um, uh, thereafter. Uh, and, uh, but despite that, central banks have held on to their gold uh, because it is the only form of money w for which there is no counterparty risk. Uh, and so uh, it is, if you like, um, 
uh, as matter is to antimatter, uh, gold <laughs> is to to fiat currencies, and and um, you know over the years we have seen various attempts by the U.S. government to try and knock gold off its perch, and they've done this. I mean, initially they they uh, uh, did some sales um, into the market, but uh, those were just lapped up particularly by the Arabs, uh, and uh, consequently, so they stopped doing sales to try and suppress the, 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 the price. Um, and instead, they encouraged the growth of uh, um, uh, derivatives in the form of uh, the mm -hmm. fall. London was um, uh, welcomed with open arms, and of course, the development of uh, the futures uh, contracts uh, um, on COMEX uh, was an additional form of expansion, paper expansion to absorb any demand for gold um, from people who might be worried from time to time about the international monetary system. And that basically is what they achieved. Right. And the futures markets then, of course, as you say, that was that served the purpose of sort of keeping control of the price of gold and keeping it um, so that it doesn't cause, I guess, so that it really, so that it, the result is not that people stop losing confidence in the paper currency, but continue to, to believe in it. Because if gold, you know, if gold surged much higher than paper, people would obviously want to jump on that train, wouldn't they? Well, yes, there's that. But I think from the government's point of view, there is another aspect, and that is a rising gold price is a vote against the dollar. And mm -hmm. uh, that's something which um, uh, the authorities very, very strongly resisted. They do not, they did not, I don't, I don't know that it matters quite so much now, but they certainly did not want to see a rising gold price. And so they would do anything to try and ensure that gold was sidelined. I mean, do you remember, um, you know, there were various people saying it was a pet rock. Um, I think <laughs> Paul asked um, uh, Bernanke, um, you know, what, uh, a question about gold. And, you know, Bernanke sort of looked a bit nonplussed and, um, you know, tried to dismiss it as, um, you know, uh, a complete irrelevance. Yeah. But, I mean, this is a bit silly because actually if you look at the Fed's balance sheet, um, there is an item in there, which is a pr promissory note from the U.S. Treasury covering 8,100-odd tons of gold, which is worth a hell of a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, it sure is. You know, that's something which I really think um, was a bit silly of Mr. Bernanke to just dismiss in such an offhand manner. Mm. Oh, it seems so. Well, in, in any event, uh, Nixon declared after he, you know, after he shut the gold window that we're all Keynesians now. And Keynesian economics became sort of a, a religion, I would say. It was established before then, but it really came into vogue. And with the blessing of uh, a so-called conservative Nixon uh, Republican, uh, we're all Keynesians now, he said. And ever since that, Keynesian economics has been what I, I think of as an economic religion. Can you comment on how the general acceptance of Keynesian economics really played into the hands of the, uh, the inflation that followed? In 1970s, of course, we had double-digit inflation, I like to remind my listeners that my first mortgage was a 17.5% mortgage. Wasn't allowed to prepay, by the way, for a number of years either. Um, anyway, maybe just comment on that, because there is this, I mean, everybody that gets a university degree is trained in Keynesian economics. That is, I mean, not everybody, but Austrian economics is a free market system, which is never taught. Um, what impact? I mean, it must have had a major impact on the way we think of things today. Today, AOC and Nancy Pelosi seem to think there's no end to the amount of money. There's no limits to the amount of money. It's almost as if God has left heaven and come to Washington and he's got control. 
of physics and, and the monetary system now. So uh, yes, uh, in, indeed. I mean, basically, um, you, what you're looking at is the difference between free markets, which are referred to, which basically um, allows individuals uh, to make the choices which really set the economic agenda. It, that's individuals, that is the public, that is the consumer, it is the producer, produ you know, being dancing to the tune of the consumer. Mm -hmm. Without regulation, without regulators telling the producer what he should produce and the consumer what he should consume. The Keynesian approach was really a statist approach. It, it's, uh, you know, the, the state is, if you like, um, uh, the most important element in the whole uh, economy. And uh, the money, uh, fiat currency, is, is, is the statist. And uh, all um, uh, variation, all human desire, um, even time itself is expunged from Keynesian economics. And uh, this allows the introduction of mathematics so that uh, things like, you know, you've got things like GDP and so on and so forth, and they're expected to grow. Now, GDP growth, all that is actually is the growth of the quantity of money recorded mm -hmm. in GDP. It doesn't tell, right. tells you nothing about, yeah. um, you know, the quality of the transactions or, um, you know, what people want. It can't do that because there is no way that, um, you know, the past can be just extrapolated into the future. Mm -hmm. And this is, um, this, th this is where the whole thing is wrong. So the mathematical approach was essentially a statist approach. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, when Nixon said we're all Keynesians now, in effect, he was dismissing completely personal choice and uh, we're living with the consequences of that now of course and um, uh, it go it's gone even further than that because the idea that inflation is merely rising prices and that can be somehow controlled by policy is um, uh, you know is it is, is is really a huge huge mistake. It's gone to the point where uh, there is absolutely no connection at all um, in the official mind between the quantity of money and um, the purchasing power of the currencies. I mean, uh, in another note, uh, um, I pointed out that Bernanke's uh, Jackson Hole speech was about monetary policy, and you know, money was not mentioned once in that speech which is an extraordinary thing. And that is actually a measure of where we've got to in terms of trying to understand, um, you know, what inflation is. And my goodness, what a mistake. I mean, to, to um, sort of think that, um, uh, you know, you can look at, uh, you know, supply factors and uh, uh, demand factors and conclude that inflation is transient is a huge error. It's a major mistake. And of course, the problem here is not only um, uh, is the Fed making a huge mistake in terms of trying to control inflation, understanding what inflation is, but it's going to be too late um, uh, for them to really wake up and do something about it. So we are going to see inflation rise. Why? Because broad money grew by over 25% last year. Mm -hmm. The consequences are now coming through now that the lockdowns have been lifted. So, um, you know, this is a very serious time. And uh, already we see what, um, you know, people refer to as stagflation. You know, you've got mm -hmm. inflation roaring, but at the same time, the economy isn't. So, um, but anyone who actually understands uh, what drives the purchasing power of the currency will understand that this, these are precisely the conditions that happen in any great inflation, and we're in the early stages of it. 
Uh, you mentioned it's too late. I mean, certainly, uh, I remember, and you're old enough to remember as well, that uh, Paul Volcker in 1980, he took his foot off the gas pedal and allowed, uh, you know, and slowed down at least the money growth, the money supply growth. And we had these enormous rates of uh, interest rates. And of course, I think um, we got closer to the real price of capital during that time. We could afford it. It was a deep recession. I remember it quite well. But actually, uh, it sort of paved the way for a long period of uh, low inflationary growth. If you define inflation by price increases, I don't know that I would say it's low inflation because, as you as you know, money uh, supply grew dramatically under Reagan's years during the 80s as well. But uh, what do you say to people that say, see, the federal, you know, they point to that and all the other issues, with the, the dot-com uh, bust and the, uh, the real estate bust of uh, 2008. And they say, see, the Fed always comes through. It always does well. It always uh, turns things around for us. And uh, what do you say to people that say that? It's, well, it's, I mean, certainly that has been the case to date. But uh, we've now embarked on um, uh, a scale of money printing that we haven't seen before. And I think to rely on the thought that the Fed actually know what they're doing and they're going to steer us through these uh, choppy waters into some sort of, um, you know, uh, future calm and, uh, you know, with the sun shining on the water and um, it's all, you know, all the rough stuff's going to go away. I mean, I think this is huge wishful thinking. I know it's wishful thinking. And, um, you know, we are, uh, I mean, fueling this wishful thinking, of course, is uh, a, a bubble in financial assets. Mm-hmm. People are fully invested in uh, the concept that the Fed can never get it wrong. I'm sorry, but, you know, they're talking their book. This is a very dangerous situation, and it behoves anyone, I think, who has financial assets to stand back and think a bit about what is actually going on and what the consequences are likely to be. Right. Well, Volcker could could raise rates uh, at that time. As I mentioned, it was painful. Um, but it sort of paved the way for a couple of decades of, of, of you know, of growth. Um, but we can't do that now. Uh, I think everybody sort of realizes that rates can't go up much at all before the whole thing is come, comes toppling down. Um, yeah. But yet you're you're insisting you're you're quite convinced that rates will rise. The Fed will not be able to stop them. I guess because they won't be able to stop inflation. Is that what is that your your idea, inflation is going to rise. That is inflation in the way that people understand it. That is rising prices. I mean, they don't see a stock market that is way overpriced as being inflation. Oh, it is. And a bond market the same way. But when oh, the consumer yeah, yeah. starts to see inflation, prices rising dramatically, is that when we're going to see the Fed lose control of the bond market? Well, uh, absolutely, because um, the point about it is that this idea that inflation is rising prices is a complete misunderstanding of actually what's happening. Inflation is, uh, uh, um, if you like, it's always a monetary thing. I mean, uh, Milton Friedman uh, said, you know, it's all a monetary thing. I mean, where he was wrong is that it's not just a monetary thing. It is Mm -hmm. also, um, you know, a public perception thing. Mm -hmm. But I mean, the point is that uh, when you see uh, the general level of prices rising, which you can't incidentally uh, quantify, but when you see 
um, uh, the general level of price is rising, actually what's happening is the purchasing power of the currency is going down. Right. Now, uh, look at, just looking, going back to this Triffin dilemma thing, um, mm -hmm. you know, we're at the point really where uh, foreigners now own roughly $32 trillion worth, that's one and a half times US GDP of financial assets. Now, uh, you know, they're sitting there exposed to dollars and they see the dollar going down. Now, their own currency may be going down as well. But if you're a business manufacturing things, what are you seeing? You are seeing you've got an awful lot of dollars and commodity prices, the things that you need to buy to make things, the, you know, the, the, the cost of labor and all the rest of it, you're going to reduce your exposure to fiat currencies. And that is... You know, that basically is, is, is what happens. And I would also say that the other problem this time compared with the time of Volcker, Volcker incidentally uh, sacrificed the savings and loan industry. Yes, that's that, true. That, that fell apart. But today, I mean, we're now looking at uh, including a money, money, you know, the, the currency in the system is, is credit. Um, or debt, if you like. Mm -hmm. And uh, the total amount of public sector debt uh, in the U.S. economy is in the region of $100 trillion. Incredible. Sorry, not public, but the total of public and private um, sector debt plus money is around about $100 trillion. And that's not including shadow banking, which according to uh, the Financial Securities Board, which does the research on these things, uh, they reckon that there's another 52 trillion of shadow banking in the US economy. Now, not all of that is, is um, if you like, uh, uh, extra credit being produced, if you like, by the banking process, but sort of off balance sheet. But um, around about 20 trillion of it probably is. So this is a major, major, major problem. And uh, it's going to take a very small rise in interest rates, basically, to uh, undermine the whole financial system. Yeah. And, uh, you know, um, one of the things also that you're, uh, one of your ideas that seems to run counter to what some of my friends, especially those that are more of the deflationary school, believe, uh, they, their sort of thinking is, yes, the system will ultimately collapse, but it will be the dollar will be the last one standing. You're sort of suggesting that the dollar is likely to be the leader of the destruction of the existing monetary system. Yes, when you get a crisis uh, in the currencies, the currencies that suffer most are the ones which are most owned. Because basically what happens is that people who own foreign currencies uh, will liquidate those currencies in order to bring their money home. Mm -hmm. Now, the foreigners owning 32 trillion, that is the one currency. The dollar is the one currency which is over-owned. The others are, I mean, if you look at the euro, that is probably under-owned to which, you know, and I mean, the fundamentals for the euro are um, worse probably than, than, than for the dollar. But what matters is the currency flows. And I think, um, uh, you know, we just have to pay attention to, to where the positions are. Everybody's got dollars, not everybody has euros, not everybody has yen. And indeed, very few people have Chinese yuan. And that's probably going to be the strong currency in a currency collapse. All right. Very interesting. And uh, we had Frank Holmes on our show recently, and he was talking about the Chinese going to a cryptocurrency backed by gold. Does that seem feasible to you? I'm going to have Frank on to talk more about it sometime in the near future, but any thoughts on that? And the second thing, real quickly, I'd just like to mention that uh, the cryptos haven't done well in the last few days, and gold has been relatively strong in light of the, uh, during the uh, equity market weakness. 
Well, the cryptos are not are not money. That's the first thing I would say. Um, uh, but gold has a long history, like five millennia of being money. And importantly, when when government money fails, it comes back <laughs> as money. So, right. uh, you know, if you're it, anyone who thinks that crypto is 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 money is actually taking a very speculative bet. I'd, I'll leave it at that. I could go into a real um, uh, uh, proper description as to why it will never work. Um, but as to uh, the Chinese uh, having uh, a gold-backed crypto, that again, I think, is very, very much speculation. Yeah. The problem. I think with uh, central bank digital currencies is that in order to get them to work, there's going to have to be a long period of testing of things. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the Chinese uh, allegedly have have sort of had trials in in certain areas and so on and so forth, but that's a a very different thing from rolling this out, if you like, on a complete basis. Mm -hmm. And I just don't see I don't see why they should have a crypto which is gold backed i mean it just doesn't make an awful lot of sense to me i think they will continue with the yuan until um you get a currency crisis which which in my view will be a dollar crisis and it will be sparked by people trying to get out of financial assets and out of the currency very much in the john law uh, model if you like that happened uh, exactly 300 years ago um because that uh, the, the mississippi bubble when that collapsed that killed uh, the currency i think we've got the potential for the same thing today all and right very you know, and the Chinese, I think, um, you know, they're not going to do anything until uh, um, that has uh, uh, sort of suddenly hit everybody. And then there will be a big rethink about what now. Yeah, indeed. Uh, we're close to something like that, Alistair, really close. I believe so, yes. I mean, the first rise in interest rates um, and indeed the anticipation of it will start undermining um, financial asset values. Uh, and as soon as they start slipping, then I think they're going to be enormous problems. The Fed is going to lose control over the situation. All right. We'll have to leave a go at that. Well, I'd like to just say, though, folks, that they go read Alistair's Dollar Debt Trap article of August 19th at Gold Money. Dot com, and there you'll hear, you'll, you'll get an awful lot more than we could talk about today. One thing he pointed out there was how much better gold performed than real estate. So just one tidbit amongst many there. Thanks so much, Alistair, for being with us today. Always great to have you. Folks, uh, that is that is all the time we have today. So uh, next week, we're going to have John Rubino, Michael Oliver. We'll be back. John Watson of NV Gold also will join me. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 